we are going on a journey here at Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church. And if you look up the front, we see two very large banners up the front, and it says, A Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament Story. And that is what we are doing in our preaching here at the church for the next, well, we've already had it, we're already partway through, aren't we? But for 12 months, we are going right through the whole Old Testament story. And up here on the right, you see the various sort of chapters or sections that we've divided it up into. We see the beginning, the family, the exodus, the land, the kings, the exile. And at the very end, we're going to be really finishing up with the Messiah. Last week, we had an awesome sermon by Ty Gibson, which was looking at what chapter, do you remember? Chapter 3 of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 3. Now this week, we are also looking at Genesis chapter 3, and you might be thinking, why are we doing that twice? Well, last week, I told Ty, very specifically, I said, you, you have to preach on the bad news in Genesis 3, but don't touch on the good news. And I think he might have slipped a few little bits of good news in there. But because I wanted the sermon on the good news, and so maybe that was selfish, I don't know. So today we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, and we're looking at the good news. And in fact, what we're going to find is that the whole story of salvation can be found, at least the, the, um, the elements that make up the story of salvation can be found right there in Genesis chapter 3. So a quick little introduction, I mean a revision of where we've been so far. The first sermon that we had in this series, David preached it, and the point that we, he left with you was the Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. And do you remember one of the ways that he, he, he arrived at that? He looked at Matthew chapter 1, he looked at the big list of genealogies, and at the end it said there was how many generations, do you remember? Between Abraham and David. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David, then from David to the exile, how many generations? 14, and then from the exile to Jesus, the Messiah, how many? 14. And why was 14 a significant number? Because it's made up of two sevens, which is the most significant number that we find in the Bible. And we save six sevens, and six is always about to come upon something climactic. And we see in creation, we see day one, two, three, four, five, six, and then comes the Sabbath. And here we see that the Old Testament story, we have as Matthew broke it down to, we have six sevens finishing with a kind of Sabbath, but it's not a day like what we see in Genesis chapter 1, but we see the story of Jesus, which all the Old Testament is leading, leading up to and arriving at the story of Jesus. So that was week number one. Week number two, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and we looked at creation, and we saw that Jesus is very much like an artist. And as he created this world, he started by creating these various canvases. He created the canvas in the sky, the canvas in the water, the canvas of the land, and then finally a canvas in time. And on those canvases, he then filled them with beautiful, creative, incredible things, such as the birds in the, in the air and the, and the, the stars in, in the heavens. We saw the fish in the water, the, the, um, the plants, and, and finally people on the land. And what did he fill the time with? He fills it with himself. And so we see Jesus is the, the great artist, and he creates this perfect world. And last week, we were talking, um, um, Ty Gibson, he started off not just by telling us the good news, but he started off by telling us why it is 
to, to understand why the bad news is so bad, he showed us just a little glimpse at how good it was, the world that God intended. And each thing that he created, God said it was good. He saw that it was, he saw that it was good. And then he created man and woman and he said it is very good. Okay, you've been listening. And he also talked about how the Garden of Eden was really the Garden of Pleasure. Okay, physical pleasure, mental pleasure, emotional pleasure, relational pleasure. And it was a paradise that we can't even begin to get our minds, can't even begin to wrap our minds around just how beautiful that would have been. And he took us to a verse, and this verse is going to be very significant in our study today. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, why were they not ashamed? Do you remember? What were each of them focused on? They weren't focused on themselves, but their, lo- their heart was, was filled with the, re- and was reflecting the incredible love that God has for us. And at the heart of love is others-centeredness. And so we see that each of them are just so wholly focused on each other that ash- being ashamed is, is not even really even possible in that sort of a scenario. But along comes Mr. Snake. And we see that from the snake, we see that the world turns completely upside down. And instead of um, being filled with this, this love, we see that, the, that instead we are now filled with insecurity, self-consciousness, shame, and guilt. Now, one of the first things that I want to share with you today is that when we read through Genesis chapter 3, you can read it through on the surface, and the story makes sense with a surface reading, but also we can look much deeper, and we can see that there is a much deeper spiritual reading that we can find there as well. And for an example, what would you say this, with the surface reading, what was the temptation in Genesis chapter 3? Take the fruit and eat it. But... Was there a deeper spiritual temptation as well? There was. Let's, ref- let's go over again the various things that the snake said to Eve. Firstly, he said, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Is that what God said? How many trees did God say you can eat? All of the trees except for one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so what is the serpent implying by this? God is restrictive. God is not about freedom, but God is restrictive. He's trying to keep things back from you. Second one, you will not surely die. What is this saying about God? God is a liar. Number three, God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is this saying about God? He's self-centered. He's self-seeking. He's He doesn't want you to have this exalted experience because that's what he has and he's keeping it from you. Ultimately, God does not have your best interests in mind, but he has his own interests in mind and God is ultimately not not loving. And so we see this three-pronged lie. God is restrictive. God is a liar. God is self-serving. And so while on the surface level, we see that um, the serpent, the, the snake, Satan, was trying to tempt Eve to just take... The, the fruit, on a much deeper spiritual level, the serpent was tempting Eve with a false picture of who God is, that God is ultimately not a God of love. 
Let's look at a second way that we see this surface reading of this text, and we also see a much deeper spiritual um, understanding as well. Hang on. We're not there yet. Don't read that verse yet. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verse 6 and 7. Genesis 3, verse 6 and 7. So again, we're looking at what's the surface reading of this, and then what's the much deeper spiritual reading. And this is going to set a bit of a foundation for finding the good news in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, it says, uh, verse 6 to 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. On the surface level, what is the problem that they face after they fall into the temptation? Nakedness. Now, would that be a a problem? It reminds me of anyone seen the old Mr. Bean episode where he gets up on the big 10-meter high diving board, and he jumps off. And he's real proud of himself when he comes out of the water until he sees his swimmers like lying across on the surface of the water. And he goes over there and this little girl picks him up and walks off with him. And in the sort of facial expressions that only Mr. Bean can do, we see this is a serious problem. So surface reading of the text, is it bad? Yes, it's bad. But the problem goes much, much deeper than that. And how do we know this? Well, let's keep reading through verse 8 through to 10. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard the voice, your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Question, was Adam and Eve, were they naked at this stage in the story? Had they made clothing for themselves? They made fig leaves for themselves. So they're wearing clothing and God comes into the garden and they have this overwhelming sense of nakedness and they run and they hide amongst the bushes. Is the problem of nakedness, is it just on the surface or is there a much deeper issue going on here? They're not naked yet anymore, but they still feel the shame. They still feel the guilt. And why is this? Well, what is nakedness? It's, it's a feeling of having a lack of privacy. It's a feeling of being ex- of exposure. I can't hide. There's nowhere to go. I'm stuck. I'm stuck here. Now, why would they have had this feeling when God came into the, into the garden? I'll take you to something that we find in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. And it says, For the Lord God does not see as man sees. But how does man see? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. Now, in this situation, on the outward appearance, Adam and Eve, they clothed themselves with fig leaves. But here they come, and they hear God coming into the garden, and they realize that the searcher of souls, the searcher of hearts, the one who knows all things is in there, and they realize that before Him, they are 100% and absolutely exposed to him. And not only that, they have this overwhelming sense of something that's gone wrong in their heart. 
I'll put up a quote that we had last week, and this is found in the book Steps to Christ. Speaking of, of, of Adam, it says, He was perfect in his being and in harmony with God. His thoughts were pure, his aims holy. But through disobedience, his powers were perverted and selfishness took the place of love. In that heart, that heart that was once fully focused on others, was just everything it thought about was, how can I please the other people? How can I please God? How can I please Eve? For Eve, how can I please Adam? Suddenly, there's this inward focus. How can I protect myself? How can I lift myself up? How can I do whatever it is that brings the most gain to myself? And Adam is there, and Eve is there, with this broken heart, and they feel this absolute sense of exposure. Exposure before God who is coming into the garden and, and, and all they can do, it's like this instinctive thing that comes upon them. They just race to the deepest parts of the woods and the gardens, hiding behind the trees. There's another quote I want to give you from Patriarchs and Prophets. It says this, The love and peace which had been theirs was gone. Okay? The love that they felt from, from Adam, from Eve, and from Eve... To, to Adam, and the love which they once felt from God, which was still there, but in their minds they can't sense it, the love and peace which that was, had been theirs was gone, and in its place they felt a sense of sin. Something's gone wrong with their heart. Something about them is now not right. Something has been corrupted. They felt uh, and a dread of the future. You remember what God said? If you eat from the tree, you will surely die. And a nakedness of soul. Their problem ran to the very depths of who they were. The sin problem was carved right down at the very depths of their heart, and they knew it, and they felt this overwhelming sense of shame and of guilt, and along was coming God, and all they could think to do was to run. And adding to that was this new false picture that they have of God. If they still had this picture that God was this incredible God of love, then maybe it wouldn't have been quite so bad. But remember, to make the problem worse, Satan had sold them the three-pronged lie, which was God is restrictive, God is a liar, God is self-seeving, and ultimately God is not love. Imagine being so exposed and having the most powerful being in the universe coming into the garden, and in your mind you now see him as a hateful, angry, wrathful person who's there to bring about your destruction. Would you feel naked? To the very depths of yourself, you would. So I imagine that they were there, and when God comes in, they come out from the trees, maybe bent over, sort of cowering, just waiting, and, and just this sense of, of what's going to happen, sense of dread about what's going to happen next. And along comes God, and... Instead of harshness, God surprises them with gentleness. And we see this in Genesis 3, starting from verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you almost get this sense that God is not doing anything different here. God every day would just come, would come into the garden and walk amongst them and talk with them, and you can imagine Adam and Eve just like racing out there, and, and seeing God, and just being so eager to see Him, and God walks in, 
into the garden, and he says this in verse, verse 9. So God comes into the garden, and the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, I don't see in those words, uh, Where are you? It's not an angry, Where are you? But rather, we see a God here who, who comes in. He well and truly knows where they are. But the, it, the story plays out that God comes into the garden, and he's there, and he's waiting for them to come out. And for some reason, Adam and Eve are absent. And so he says, where are you? There's a gentleness in, in God's response there. Verse, verse 10. It says, so he said, so Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God says in response, who told you that you were naked? Can we see how God is just sort of playing along with the story here in a very loving and, and, and gentle way? Who told you that we're naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that, that you should not eat? Is he condemning here? He's simply inquiring. Have you eaten from that tree, Adam? How, how do you know that you're naked? And Adam says, says, then the man said, and here we see this sort of, this sort of switch that takes place, this, this sin, selfishness which now occupies Adam's heart sort of manifests itself. And he suddenly thinks, think here, Adam. Remember, God said, in the day that you eat from the fruit, the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And he thinks about that, and he's like, man, I can't just say yes to this question. And so suddenly, he, he's in an instant, his mind just schemes up this way to get out of this problem. And he says, the woman who you gave me, she tricked me. She gave it to me. And we see that all of the, the guilt, what does Adam do with it? Picks it up, and he sits it on the woman and also on God as well, because it's the woman that you gave me. And there's, there's no, like, confession here, but rather there's an evasiveness here, a trying to cover oneself, a trying to evade the, the responsibility that, that he should be taking upon himself, and for Eve. And he says, it's Eve's fault, and it is your fault. So God, again, he, play, he plays along with this. And he goes, oh, is that what happened? Verse 13, so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman, again, in an instant, this, this, it doesn't take long for this sinful heart to work out what to do. And in an instant, she's schemed up this whole way for her to get out of the problem. And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, responsibility, shame, guilt, all of that is picked up and it's placed upon the snake. There's not much sort of ownership of the problem here is there and so god is there and and still we don't even in this situation we don't see god pointing the finger we don't see god condemning we don't see the, any harshness from god but now god looks over to the snake and here is where we get into the section where we see the good news starting to shine and there's already good news in here the good news is simply the way that god responded to them when I see that, I'm like, man, there's hope. There's hope for me. So, verse 14. So God then looks to the snake. Now, does God ask any questions of the snake? He doesn't. There's a history that goes very deep between God and Satan up to this, up to this point. And there is no need for questions. They already know what, there's a, there is very clear what happened between those two. And, and God looks at, looks at the snake and he says, 
Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, I see a little bit, it's not quite as gentle here. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust. Have you ever wondered why snakes just crawl around their bellies? Well, here we see the reason. And, and implied in that is that this snake was not just this sort of... Now, some people think snakes are really beautiful. Um, some people. Some people think that they're terrifying and horrible. But before this curse, it appears that this snake had, in some way, was a majestic creature. And that would sort of make sense why Satan chose the snake to be the, the, the medium and the way for, through which to communicate to Eve. So cursed are you. Now in that, cursed are you more than all the cattle of the field and, all, and every, all, the, all the cattle and every beast of the field. Implied in that is that there is a curse that's going out not just upon the snake, but upon all of, all of um, the created world. And if you wonder when you look at creation and you think, Man, why is it that there's something built into this animal that just seems evil? There's just something wrong with it. We are living in a world where creation itself has been cursed. And it's all a result of Adam and Eve making that decision to not only have that full experiential knowledge of good, but also of, of evil. So he says, And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But then God switches. The curse now is not coming primarily on the snake, the actual animal, but it's coming upon the power and the person, the being behind that snake, which is Satan himself. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. What does enmity mean? Hostility. That's good, yep, I like that. Any other words that you can throw out? What was that? Mistrust, yep. Did it have one over here? Hatred. Okay, hostility, hatred, mistrust. They're all right. It's the, the mutual hatred and hostility that exists between enemies. Okay, and enemies is a very similar word to enmity there. So we see here that God is saying, firstly, that there, and, and this is placed upon in a number of different relationships as we go through this verse. Firstly, we see it is between, hang on, once my phone where it is again. It is between you and the woman. Who's the you? Satan. So there's enmity, there's this intense hatred and hostility between Satan and the woman. Who's the woman? In the, in the from here it's, it's, it's Eve, okay? In the, in, the, in the first part of that, from you and the woman, which then, which then carries on to, it goes on to say, between your seed and her seed. So between the descendants or the children of Satan and the descendants and the children of Eve. Hang on, who are the descendants and the children of Satan? Ever thought that when you read this verse? Keep your finger in there and we're going to race across to John chapter 8, verse 39 to 44. John 8. 39 to 44. Who are the descendants of Satan? John 8, verse 39 to 44. 
here we see Jesus talking with the Pharisees and the, the children of Abraham, who they think they are. And it says, so John 8, 30, 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. So here we have a group of people that think that they are descendants of Abraham and in turn descendants of the woman, God's faithful people. And what does God say in response? Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I have heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father, of your father. Note that word there. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from them. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, reference to Eden, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Who are the descendants? Who are the children of, this, of Satan, of the devil? It's those who follow him. It's those who do the will of, of, of Satan. And who are the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of the woman, the descendants, the children of God? They're those who do the will and the works of God. So we see here, back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see on the, the first relationship where there's this enmity, this, this mutual hatred is between Satan and, the, and, um, and Eve, then between all of her descendants and all of um, the Satan's descendants. In other words, between all the faithful people of, of God, the followers of God and the followers of, of the evil one. And isn't that just a, a, um, the story of the whole Bible? God has a faithful people. The rest of the world is, is unfaithful and they're at war with each other. That's the story of the whole, whole Bible there. Third relationship. Let's go to... Back to 3.15, at the end of it. So I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now it says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who are the two people here? Who do you think the he is? Can it refer to all of the seed, all of the descendants of Eve? It's in the singular, isn't it? He. Here it is, we see that, that it's, it's talking about some future descendants of Eve and and this is not now the it goes so so where are we? he shall uh, he shall bruise your head and you this is talking to Satan shall bruise his heel we see here that as a result of this enmity it's going to finally come down to two two beings a descendant of Eve and Satan himself who through this enmity one will get bruised on the heel, the snake, the serpent, Satan will bruise the descendant on the heel. And think about it. Where do snakes spend most of their time? On the ground. So if it's going to strike you, where's it most likely to strike you? On the heel. Okay? But what happens from, what does this descendant to do to the snake? Crushes its head. Bruises its, he- its head. And so what we see here, as a result of this battle... The descendant is going to get 
injured, it's going to get hurt, it's going to get, it's going to get wounded, bruised. But ultimately, the s- Satan is going to be destroyed. Now I see here, because this is, this is being directed at Satan, but who is, over list, who is listening in on this conversation? Adam and Eve. They're there, and they're listening in, and they're hearing that there's going to be enmity between them and the kingdom of, of Satan. If God has to put this enmity between them, what does that tell us about man, fallen mankind's natural relationship with Satan? If God had to actually do this supernatural act and put enmity between them, that means that in the natural relationship between us, fallen, um, fallen humanity, and, and Satan is unity, isn't it? That's a scary thing. It means that the sinful, evil, the sin and the evilness within the human heart is such that it is completely aligned with the, the ways and the evil desires of Satan. And that is a scary thing. But here we see Adam and Eve, they're listening in, and in their minds, hope starts to emerge. And they're thinking, we've made a mistake. This is terrible. But in these words, we see hope. And from the snakes, from Satan's perspective, he's listening in, and he thinks, this is it. I've got Adam and Eve. I've got the human race. They're mine. And he hears that word enmity, and he suddenly realizes that God is going to do something supernatural that will empower the human race to stand up and to resist Satan. Reminds me of reminds me of James 4, 7, where it says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The only reason we can do that is because of this promise. That if we submit ourselves to God, that he will empower us to resist the devil and ultimately will cause him to flee from us. Now, this first gospel promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, is, provides the backdrop of the entire Bible. Do you believe that? Let me prove it to you. Turn with me to the beginning of Genesis chapter 4, and it might be still on the same page. Genesis chapter 4, so just after the, the problem and the, and the good news given in Genesis 3, we see Genesis 4, it says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord, then she bore again, and this time his brother, uh, his brother Abel. Now, do we have a woman here? Yes, Eve. Do we have descendants? Yes, Cain first, then Abel. Okay. Now, do these descendants end up being hostile to one another? Very much so. Okay. We see that one is faithful, Abel is faithful to God, Cain is unfaithful to God, and as a result of this, we see that Satan works through, through Cain and actually kills off Abel. Now, I wonder what was going through the mind of Satan in, that, in, in inciting um, Cain to do that. Could it be that he's thinking, maybe in doing this, I'm going to eliminate the descendants of Eve, and in doing so, eliminate their hope of having the sin problem destroyed? And we see this when we get to the very end of chapter 4. It says... 
It says, And Adam, verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a seed and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Notice that word seed. It's the exact same word that we see in Genesis 3, verse 15. Here we have Eve, and the seed, the one that was faithful, the one that was hopefully going to redeem humanity, is killed off. And we see, hang on, God has given me another seed. Genesis chapter 5, we see this huge list of names. You see Adam, Seth, Enoch, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, all the way down to Noah. Why is that included there in the Bible? Could it be that in the Old Testament, there is this focus upon the descendants of Eve? From your, from your seed, there will be enmity, which will crush the devil and will bring about deliverance from this sin problem. So we go from Adam uh, right down to Noah, and all the focus is on, on, this, on this seed. And what happens at the time of Noah? Look at, with me at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 to 8. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What has happened to the seed of Satan at the time of Noah? How big is it? It's the entire world. And how big is the seed of the woman? One person. Woody, how do you think Satan viewed that one person? Noah. Man, he would have hated. He's, he's turned the whole world into the descendants, into the children of Satan. And Noah alone is left. And God says, all right, we need to destroy all these other, other people. Um, and with this one, we're going to start things up again. And we go across to Genesis 9, verse 9. And it says, And as for me, so this is God speaking to Noah, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and with your descendants, or the actual word is seed, taken straight from 3.15, after you, and with every living creature. In other words, and then it goes on to say, he's not going to destroy the world in the same way. Again, where's the focus? The focus is on the seed, which is going to bring deliverance. We go across to chapter 11. We see, again, the world is in apostasy, the Tower of Babel, and come to verse 10, and we see this another genealogy, this time from the time of Noah right down to the time of Abraham. And we see a promise is given to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. We go then across to Matthew chapter 1, which we looked at in our introductory sermon to this series. And again, we see a huge um, genealogy, this time from, so we saw from Adam to Noah, then from Noah to Abraham, and now we're seeing from Abraham right down to Jesus. And then... It goes on to say, verse 18, so Gen Matthew chapter 1. This is, the ne this, is how, this is how the New Testament begins. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After, this is verse 18. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she, found, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. And while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of Mary, of, sorry, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is within her is 
is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this angel comes to Joseph, has this message. There's a special child that's coming to, to Mary. Don't send her away. Feel comfortable. Feels it's the right thing to do to marry her. Verse 21, and she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Genesis 3 verse 15, a promise is given. The promise is given to Adam and to Eve that one of their descendants will bring about deliverance from sin. And we see 4,000 years later, around about 70 generations, and finally a baby is born on whom rests the hopes of the entire world. However, not only does Genesis 3 tell us that there will be victory, that this Messiah will come, that this child will come, Genesis 3 also tells us how this child is going to defeat Satan, how this child is going to once and for all deliver us from sin. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and verse 21. So God is finished with his discussion with Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he then does something incredibly practical, hands-on. And in verse 21, so Genesis 3, in verse 21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin, and he clothed, clothed them. Now, would it be easy to just skim over that verse? It would be easy, wouldn't it? But there is a depth in that verse that reveals to us how this child is going to defeat the problem of sin. So on the surface level, what was the problem that Adam and Eve faced? Nakedness. Okay. Does this, does this solve the problem on the surface level? They have clothing now. God makes them more durable clothing than fig leaves, which probably would have got old and dry and fallen off. Not very effective. Now they have clothing of skin. But not only does this clothing show them how he fixes the surface problem, but it shows them the deeper spiritual meaning behind it, the deeper spiritual truth of how God is going to fix and to clothe the nakedness of the human race. And so I want to... Okay. I want to make five, and this is just going to be quick, five quick observations on the significance of this clothing of skin. Number one, skin requires death. Would you agree with that? How else are you going to skin off animals unless you kill the animal? There was a death that took place in this garden. Number two, this victim was innocent. How many guilty, sinful animals were there? I guess there was a, the snake. But here we see the victim was innocent. We're not told what animal it, it was, but we see that the victim was innocent. It didn't deserve this death. Number three, this victim received what Adam and Eve deserved. Can you see that? Adam and Eve, God said, if in the day that you eat, eat of this fruit, sure, you will surely die. They ate of the fruit. They now had the sin problem. They deserved death. This penalty was then put upon this innocent 
animal. Number three, number four, Adam and Eve were covered by the victim's innocence. Can we see that? There was nothing wrong with this animal. It was an animal without spot, without blemish. It was a perfect animal, and that covered Adam and Eve. And finally, to be clothed, they had to take off their fig leaves in order to put on the clothing of skin. Because I don't think that God would have came and said, all right, you've got these fig leaves. I'm going to put this clothing right over the top of them. What would they have done? They would have had to come before God, because it says God was the one who clothed them. Take off the fig leaves and let God cover them with the innocence of this animal. Now, how does this apply to Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 29. You see how Matthew starts by referencing back to Genesis 3. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This shows me that this Genesis 3.21 about this skin, this is also a background text for the rest of the whole Old Testament story. And right through from Noah, Noah had sacrifices. We see Abraham, he made sacrifices. We see King David, he made sacrifices. Right through in the sanctuary system, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. What's with all this sacrifice? Because when we get to John chapter 1, we see Jesus come along and it says, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of these things were pointing forward to Jesus. Now what significance does that make it? What significance is that for us? Well, that means... That these five observations that we made upon the, the skin, the clothing of skin in Genesis 3, these five things can also apply to Jesus. Number one, skin, which represents the solution to sin, requires death. Do we see that in Jesus? He died the death for our sins. Number two, this victim was innocent. Do we see that in G- with Jesus? He who knew no sin became sin for us. Number three, this victim received what Adam and Eve deserved. What is the result of sin? It's death, it's shame, it's separation from God, it's hostility with one another, it's, it's guilt, it's insecurity, it's all of those things. And Jesus come to this, comes to this earth and he takes upon himself the whole lot of it in an extent that none of us have experienced. He goes to that cross He gets beaten, he gets falsely accused, he gets betrayed, he gets those nails through his hands and through his feet, the crown of thorns upon his his head, the sins of the world pressing upon his soul, and then he experiences the separation between him and God, and ultimately he experiences death. Jesus is the victim who received not just what Adam and Eve deserved, what every single one of us deserves. Number four, Adam and Eve were were covered by the victim's innocence. Are we covered as well? In 1 Corinthians, it says that he who knew knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The sin which is ours was given to Jesus, and he took the punishment of that, and the innocence and the righteousness and the faithfulness of Jesus was then given to us, and we are now treated in the way that Jesus deserves. And point number five, to be clothed, they had to take off their fig leaves. 
And if you remember last week, Ty was talking about all the things that we try to do to cover ourselves up. And he talked about the workaholic, the nerd, the bad boy, the flirt, the victim, the hero, the comedian, the corrector, the priest. All these various things, getting money for ourselves so we feel more valuable, getting fame, getting power, all these things that we do to sort of try and cover up this and make up for this lack of value and self-worth that we have, this, this emptiness within us. All of these fig leaves, just like Adam and Eve needed to take those off, God requires that we take it all off and we come before Him in repentance and confession and opening ourselves up to being vulnerable and exposed before God. And in the same way, God then comes down and in an intimate way, just like He did with Adam and Eve, He clothes us, not with the righteousness of an animal, but with the righteousness of Himself. Father in heaven, what an awesome God you are. A God of infinite love who, instead of putting the blame, which you had none, upon someone else, Lord, you took it all upon yourself. What an amazing, gracious, loving God that you are. And Lord, I just pray that this love that you have for, for us, may it transform us. May you put within us that enmity against the devil, Lord. That ability to stand up and to resist and to oppose the devil in our daily lives. Help us to stand up against temptation. Help us to win the battles that we face. Lord, because you have ultimately won the battle against Satan. You've crushed him under your foot, Lord. And you know that you're going to crush him under our feet as well. And so, Lord, I just pray for all the decisions that have been made. If there's someone here who's made the decision to accept your forgiveness for the first time, Lord, we just pray that you'll be with them and bless them in a very special way. And I just pray that as we go home, that you'll just continue to impress upon us just the size and the, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name.